welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tatefield. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and final year law students who are very passionate about feminism and the law. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Elizabeth Borland, Professor of Sociology at the College of New Jersey. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi there. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you. Um, I'm a feminist sociologist and I've studied reproductive rights movements in Argentina for nearly three decades um, with some comparative work on Chile and Uruguay over the last five years. I'm really interested in the connection between abortion rights and legal activism at a time when policy changes are making abortion more accessible in South America, even as it's become less available in the United States and and unfortunately other other places too. Yeah, it seems like one of your main interests um, lies in gender and and social movements. So I guess, why is that? Or I guess maybe a better way to to frame that might be what sparked that interest. Yeah, that's a great question. I actually studied abroad as a student in Argentina way back uh, as an undergraduate. And um, I was really inspired by the work of activists there. Of course, Argentina has this sort of long tradition of um, an important aspect of women's activism with the Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, a group of human rights activists that were really important in challenging the dictatorship there. So of course I knew about that tradition and I was inspired by by that work, but I was also really inspired by feminists at the time who were working around abortion rights at a time when people weren't really talking about it very much in Argentina. So um, it's a great example of how I've uh, kind of been captivated by the work of activists around the world, really, as they engage in collective action to address really big social problems that are faced in their their communities. And I think both for feminists and other uh, activists that bring gender in some ways into their work, um, I think they've been on the forefront of a lot of really important issues in contemporary society. And I'm interested in how gender identity has had an impact on how people engage in collective action and also their approaches to that work. That sounds fascinating, thank you. And such a wide and um, broad field of research. Um, So in your article called Feminist Lawyers Litigation and the Fight for Abortion Rights in the Southern Cone, um, and what from you just, and from what you just told us about um, your research and your studies, um, you decide to focus on um, three countries primarily, namely Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. Um, So why is that? And why these significant in terms of socio-political context? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting uh, set of cases. Um, In all three places, um, they've had uh, abortion has for a long time was uh, prohibited, it was illegal, but was widely practiced. And sometimes, unfortunately, with deadly consequences and sometimes leading to imprisonment. Um, um, But in the last 10 years or so, there've been really major changes um, and changes in all three places actually in terms of the law. Um, And social movements have been part of that change and have been important in contributing to the recent reforms that expanded access to safe and legal abortion in all three countries. Um, The changes have been different and the implementation has been different, so it's a good comparative case. Um, But it's also, you know, a set of cases that many scholars in general have compared um, because they have somewhat similar histories in terms of experiencing dictatorship, having some economic similarities, um, you know, religious and cultural similarities, um, you know, as well as differences too, but um, it's a commonly uh, compared set of cases. So I guess going on from that, then what's the general situation regarding abortion rights in the Southern Cone today? 
Yeah, so it is. it does vary by country. So Uruguay was sort of first up. They removed the penalty for first trimester abortion in 2012. Um, and they implemented a policy that was seen at the time as being, you know, kind of groundbreaking. Um, it has a five-day waiting period. And um, to have an abortion, a pregnant person must be approved by a tribunal, as the feminists call it, of um, a, a medical provider, a psychologist, and a social worker. Um, and then um, if they are, uh, they've been resident in Uruguay for a period of time, they're, they're, um, they're able to um, have a legal abortion. And that law really resulted from a campaign that garnered an amazing amount of both public and legislative and presidential support. Um, but activists, while they appreciate the provisions that are available for first trimester abortions, um, right, do argue that it puts too much power in the hands of medical institutions um, and um, you know, there's legal cases and challenges around women being denied access. Um, Chile uh, followed in 2016 um, with a much more limited provision that makes abortion legal in very limited cases of rape, of non-viable fetuses, and when there's a, a threat to the women's life. Um, and so in that case, it's been much more restrictive. So there is legal abortion in Chile, but it is really based on those three causes. Um, and uh, and so it's, there's been a lot of demands for access to extend access, um, and also because the law doesn't provide free public provision. Um, in Argentina, um, it's the case that's sort of most recent and in some ways most exciting uh, for feminists around, around the world, really, and especially in Latin America, because there's, there was an enormous wave of activism that rallied support um, in the legislative and executive branch to pass a pro progressive, a very progressive abortion rights law in, the, in late 2020. Um, so, you know, even amidst the pandemic, uh, you know, there was this really um, added momentum to this big wave of protest that, ins that has inspired others around Latin America. Um, so that law is um, a more progressive law. Um, it, uh, one of the things I think is really interesting is that it allows, any, it allows for anyone with gestational capacity um, to have um, guaranteed access of, of a, 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 a public provision of abortion. And so that's a case where, you know, even incorporating gender identity um, and folks who are not, who don't identify as women, um, but who could be pregnant people um, are included in that law. So that's kind of an interesting element that people haven't talked as much about in that case. Um, yeah, so I think that that's sort of the landscape and um, the case of Argentina is really exciting and I think has had a lot of, um, a lot of attention over the last few years as other countries, including in Latin America and other places around the world have looked to it as a model. You mentioned that um, the reason that, you know, you look at the Southern Cone is because they tend to have a lot of like similarities in terms of like their culture and their religion and, and that kind of thing. And I'm just wondering if maybe you could explain um, why you think that um, within those three countries, given the similarities in culture and religion, et cetera, that abortion is much more restrictive in some and like one of them as opposed to as opposed to the other and like why that discrepancy exists yeah i mean i think that the um clearly the religious landscape is a little bit different in the three countries so uruguay has been much more secular in nature and chile has been much more um conservative in, nat in nature although um even as the catholic church has eroded a little bit in chile we've had a rise in, the, in evangelical protestantism there that's an important factor to consider um, so, you know, 
some cultural similarities, but also those differences, like the, the church, Catholic church has still been dominant in all three cases, but I think that um, less so with a more secular orientation of the government in, or in Uruguay than in the other two cases. So that's an important factor. Um, I also think that you know Chile is sort of the poster child of neoliberalism and sort of individual orientation for, for example, healthcare. You know, is much more privatized there. So when you get provisions that have to do with public hospitals and public um, provisions of access, like we have in, in Argentina, it's much harder to envision how that might happen in Chile, where much more of the, um, uh, for example, the healthcare system is, is much more in individualized. Yeah. So, I mean, those are just two examples. There are important variations. Um, I don't, I think that speaks to your question. Yeah, thank you for clarifying those points. Um, so in your article, um, you write extensively about the pivotal role of cause lawyers um, as important resources to expand democracy and lead the movement. Um, so could you please expand on this um, and about, you know, how important their role is um, and, and why lawyers? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, cause lawyering is a really interesting phenomena. It kind of involves a really broad set of activities because um, you have lawyers that are engaging in kind of mobilizing the law to, to promote or to resist social change. So oftentimes people think right away of strategic litigation, which um, you know, really is a strategic, strategic effort to use litigation to change legal standards. Um, but I think we wanna think of cause lawyering as, as broader than just that, right? So um, often it involves attempts to foster support for collective action, to make legal change sustainable and to really work around implementation, which has been particularly important in these three cases. Um, and often actually the role also involves um, a significant amount of publicity, which might not be something necessarily that other types of lawyering is always engaged with, right? Um, so um, when movements in general have, have um, kind of nimble cause lawyers that are able to act as both lawyers and activists and kind of marry that role, they can engage in more defensive strategies as well as more offensive strategies using the law. And I think that um, you know, when it comes to abortion rights in Latin America, much of the focus has been on advocating new legislation and working with movements to, to work on that legislation, to make that legislation um, the proposals for legislation um, as um, possible, you know, make them possible, but also kind of um, to, to try and make sure that the implementation is, is feasible. Um, change, though, has also come through court cases, right? So court cases are often kind of testing ground for interpretation of existing laws. And it's another way that lawyer activists can kind of work to demand access, especially around the most vulnerable. Um, and finally, I think sometimes cause lawyering also is much quieter, right? It can also be cases that lawyers take to support individual plaintiffs uh, or individual uh, uh, victims of uh, various problems around reproductive justice. And I think that, um, you know, we often kind of think of the cause lawyering that's sort of before the camera and in the courts on the court steps, maybe having an interview or something. Um, but I think some cause lawyering is much quieter and goes on more behind the scenes as people try and address the specific concerns that, um, that people have um, when their rights have been violated. 
Yeah, it sounds like cause lawyering is definitely like a really interesting phenomenon, very important in terms of advancing um, certain progressive social movements. Um, and so in your article, you also talk about the fact that feminist legal training and networks are instrumental for cause lawyers to secure rights and access to abortion in the Southern core. So why is that? And how significant do you think the impact of cause lawyers could be to advance women's rights and access to abortion? Yeah, this is something that I think is really interesting, and it's one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to to you all. Um, uh, you know, in, being interested in sort of feminist legal education, it's an area where I think a comparative lens uh, that I have with these three cases can help us to understand, especially the importance of legal training and 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 networks also between lawyers. So, in general, Chile and Uruguay have been less developed, have had less developed networks. Uh, compared with in Argent Argentina. And there in Argentina, lawyers uh, talked to me about how really the groundwork for the work that they were doing now was laid two decades ago in connections that they very um, kind of instrumentally and strategically built between feminist lawyers across the country. So they created a federal network, I think it started in 2002, um, and it coordinated work with government agencies, with bureaucracies, um, with health ministries, public health system, but also with the judicial branch, right? So working with national and provincial courts and judges, you know, training um, judicial branch personnel around existing health protocols, and even working with journalists to, to kind of challenge and help them think a little bit better about how they were writing about legal cases that had to do with abortion. And so that really concerted effort um, and that with kind of strategic work and network building has paid off, um, I think, in Argentina and the sort of high preparation that they have as lawyers for taking on cases, um, as well as sort of the network of lawyers and judicial personnel who are informed about abortion rights. Um, and um, it, especially in a place like Argentina, where you have this sort of federal court system um, that's disparate, sometimes very far away and provinces kind of far from the capital, having that kind of network that's built out across the country has been really essential. Um, you mentioned legal training, right? So that's another interesting aspect of this. Um, so at the same time um, that all this work to build networks was going on, there was also an interesting push to build the, an expansion of women and gender studies um, into academic settings. And, and, and this was happening in you know, the University of Buenos Aires, but other places across Argentina. Feminists were interested in drawing attention to gender, including reproductive justice, well, at the time it was more about reproductive rights, in legal training. So you had more law students exposed to just issues in general of gender and the law, and it created a fertile environment for groups of activist lawyers to form and to kind of be trained to then be part of these, these broader networks. So I think that this, this case of Argentina is a really good model to think about um, the importance of kind of the networking effort that goes on, the activists, um, you know, kind of building those connections and, and lawyer activists, especially building those connections with the institutional support um, to kind of weave together networks of support um, and connections among cause lawyers or future cause lawyers um, so they can pool resources, so they, you know, knew, know who to contact in case of various kinds of issues coming up, and they can learn from one another. And I think ultimately to kind of help create the kinds of institutions that will support re real reproductive justice. And I think that's a, that's a strategy and an effort. It's like a, it takes some time to build those sorts of networks, but I think that's the kind of thing that can pay off everywhere around the world, right? Um, for people who are getting legal training, who are feminist in orientation to kind of really do the work to build up the capacity 
to take on the various kinds of cases that, that can come up when reproductive justice and other gender justice types issues come up. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. I think it's a really interesting angle to explore. Um, so now if we kind of shift our vision towards um, the more legal side of things and more like legislation. Um, so in your opinion, do you think that legislation in Southern Cone countries is a suitable way of progressing democracy and advancing women's rights, especially regarding abortion? Um, and do you think there are any clear instances where this has worked or rather not worked? Well, of course, that depends on the content of the legislation, right? Um, and I think we can see that here with the case of Chile, right? So in Chile, the law on the one hand was, uh, you know, when it was instituted in 2017, it was a major advance because they were working from a complete ban that came from the Pinochet dictatorship, right? Uh, um, that had been in place for a really long time, this complete ban on abortion. So of course, in 2017, you know, after years of feminist campaigning, you have this new law right, the ban is lifted, abortions become allowed under some conditions, but they're extremely strict, right? It is just these, if, if a woman's life is at risk, uh, if she's raped or if the fetus is viable, it's a very minuscule proportion. And um, the amount of time that it might take to get, uh, get things approved is also a problem because of course, you know, pregnancy runs on a time, pretty strict, strict time clock there, right? And you need to, to, um, to get provisions of access to abortion within a period of time, right? So while the statistics are a little iffy um, in Chile on some of these issues, activists estimate that it is less than 5% of all um, abortions that are happening in Chile are using these three causes, right? So the majority of women are still having abortions that are not legal that are secret and sometimes are at high risk. So there's a case where like, yes, the content of the legislation is extremely important in terms of actually being able to ask it, uh, to access uh, abortion. In Argentina, on the other hand, the provisions have been much more effective, right? We have a much more progressive law, um, goes to 14 weeks, but also includes provisions for later term abortions. It's public uh, in terms of accessing free uh, uh, abortion. It's really exciting because it is the most progressive law. Um, and we can see that already we, um, there are more, more people accessing abortion through the provisions. There's a declining maternal mortality rates. Um, you know, as more pe pregnant people get the care they deserve, right? But at the same time, there's still obstacles. There's obstacles to ensuring accessible quality care for everyone, especially given the disparate access by regions. So especially, for example, in the north of Argentina, um, you, you can, there can be miles or kilometers, uh, many, many between where people have access to, um, to abortion because there's so many doctors and medical personnel who've declared themselves to be conscientious objectors and refuse to even prescribe medication abortion, right? Or, or get involved in it in any way. So, um, so even when there is you know, legislation, it's also about the implementation and, how, and people being able to gain access. Um, in fact, there's been um, some recent cases that have targeted doctors who do provide access. So in 2021, there was a case of a doctor named Miranda Ruiz. Um, she was arrested for prescribing misoprostol, the, one of the main medications for medication abortion, to a pregnant adult in the province of Salta who auto-administered, you know, right according to the provisions of the law. And um, a, a kind of an overzealous conservative prosecutor went after her. Um, and arrested her, um, and she spent a few hours in jail even, having completely, um, you know, followed the law and everything that she'd done. 
case was ultimately overturned, but I think it's a good illustration of how the law alone can't guarantee access, right? It's about you know, implementation, it's about actually having access, um, especially throughout the country, and also the continued importance of lawyers being available when the law needs to be implemented or when there are challenges, when, when people's rights are being violent, violated. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting that you mentioned this, this doctor being arrested for um, providing abortion access. And I, I guess pivoting then to like, considering that recently in the United States, Rowan Wade has been overturned, and there's been the K120 decision in Poland, which both ban or at least allow for the ban, um, at least partially, of legal abortions. Where, where do you foresee abortion rights heading in the Southern Cone? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's 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 really striking to see these kind of comparisons, right, between what's happening, uh, especially in, in Argentina most recently, but I think we also see in Mexico and Colombia, kind of other cases that are somewhat similar, of uh, really massive groundswells of activism that led to these big changes that have happened in in Argentina, in the Southern Cone, and, and in um, in other places in South America and Central America too. Um, and then to contrast that with what's gone on in the United States and more recently in Poland, right? So um, I think conscientious objection will continue to be important, right? So thinking about um, how conservatives are also using the court, right? They're in both, we see this in the United States very clearly, right? Also using the courts, also using lawyer, cause lawyering to stand in the way of, um, of real access to, um, to reproductive rights um, in, in, in all these places. Um, one thing I think is kind of interesting about this is uh, that in, in the Southern Cone, there's been an emphasis on what activists call the social decriminalization of abortion, right? This idea that you can have legalization, you can have policies, but so long as as people kind of still associate, uh, are stigmatizing abortion, are kind of criminalizing, at least even in their minds and in social norms abortion, people won't be able to fully exercise reproductive, reproductive justice. And I think that, um, you know, the, you know, our, our activists, feminists, uh, colleagues in Argentina really shine a light on the importance of that kind of continued street level activism, kind of grassroots organizing with a great deal of persistence and perseverance and how much that, how important that is, right? To really um, build a social decriminalization of abortion. So I think that that is something that I see kind of expanding, certainly in Latin America. And I think it's something that we need to learn from in places like the United States and you know, in Poland as well, other places around, uh, around the world, um, that it's not just about legal provision, but it's also about social decriminalization. Yeah, and I think given that, like, I mean, you mentioned earlier about, like, the importance of cause lawyering and, like, feminist legal training and that kind of thing, it's really interesting to highlight how cause lawyering can really go both ways in one sense mm -hmm. to enhance access, but in the other to attempt to try to restrict it. So that's definitely really interesting. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes those dynamics of, you know, taking a page from the playbook, right, some of the things that um, the cases around the conscientious objector cases have used some frameworks around human rights, used frameworks that um, have been used for a long time by feminists and more progressive activists. So it's interesting to see that. Yeah, 100%. And to kind of borrow your words, um, again, it really does sound like there's persistent and um, perseverance in terms of the um, work that's being done for abortion rights in the Southern Cone, especially Argentina, um, which is really reassuring to, to see. 
Um, so now just to wrap up, um, if our listeners would like to learn more about your research um, or women's rights and abortion rights in, in the Southern Cone more specifically, um, where could they do so, please? Thank you. Yeah, um, I'm happy to, to share my work. They could look me up on Google Scholar. Um, certainly also, um, you mentioned the, the chapter in the, uh, uh, that I was referring to and that you referred to in the beginning of the podcast. Um, that's a great book, I think, that um, can, can be a good reference point for thinking about abortion rights in the Southern Cone in general. Um, I'm joined with a whole bunch of other wonderful um, uh, scholars from different disciplines um, that are looking at abortion kind of in, the, in democracy and kind of contentious, uh, what's called contentious body, body politics in um, Argentina, Chile, and Uruguay. So I think that could be a good place to start with pieces from people working on this topic from different perspectives. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In today's Feminist News Roundup, the BBC has revealed that hundreds of sex offenders slipped off police radars over a three-year period after the offenders had changed their names. Also in today's News Roundup, double rapist Isla Bryson has been sentenced to eight years in prison. The judge also declared that Bryson would be monitored for three years after release due to posing a serious risk for reoffending. Finally, a year after the historic overturning of the Roe and Wade judgment in the U.S., Individual states are being left to decide reproductive rights, with some states rolling back protections and others striving to enshrine women's bodily autonomy in the law.